Chapter 24 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning, 2 Samuel 24. It is at the end of the book. We're not finished. It's, we're at the end of the book. We're not yet finished with 2 Samuel. We're going to read this last chapter in just a moment. You might also want to, if you find it or you use it, grab the note sheet that's in your bulletin. I'm going to refer to that in just a minute or two. Uh, before we look more carefully into God's Word, let's pray together this morning, shall we? Father, we come before you and we are grateful to you for this uh, opportunity we have to meet together. You command us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We uh, have heard that in your word. We have read it and uh, we have covenanted with one another to gather together. And I'm grateful to you for the grace of God that is present and evident in the lives of these men and women and children who are here this morning in obedience to your word. We come in faith now to this book that is open before us. Father, I, I'm, I'm so grateful to you for this congregation. You, you warn us in your word that uh, in the last days, people will have itching ears and they'll only want to hear what they want to hear or hear what affirms what they already believe or hear what merely is saccharine and trifling and easy. And yet we, we come with expectancy to your word, Father, that you would speak to us. Our, our great longing as a church is that your word would be uh, effective and, and powerful and your spirit would open our eyes and convict our hearts and sharpen our minds as we read this. That's a sign of your grace and we're a thank, we are thankful to you for that. I'm, I'm thankful to you for this congregation that is demanding, demanding to know what your word says. So as we sit here with it open before us this morning, we ask that you would help us. There are discouraged people here this morning who need to be encouraged. There are lazy people here this morning who need to be warned. There are wandering people who need to be admonished. Uh, there are uh, swiftly running people who can be cheered on in the race. Lord, I, I pray that you would help us. Our fervent hope and expectation is that during this time, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Oh God, you who are our Redeemer through your great Son, the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray these things together, saying, Amen. Now on the note sheet, I don't often draw attention to this, but uh, there is a title for this uh, talk this morning, and I called it, First in Sin, First in... Oh, mine's cut off. Sacrifice. Is yours cut off too? Oh, well, it's meant that way. First in sin, first in sacrifice. That's a, an allusion, uh, perhaps uh, maybe too loose of an allusion, to what Richard Henry Lee wrote about George Washington. You all know what he said. Washington died December of 1799. They asked Richard Henry Lee, George Washington's friend and fellow uh, soldier, to write the official eulogy Congress did. He wrote it in 12 days, and it was read for the first time on December 28, 1799. Took him a long time. Uh, 1799. 
And uh, toward the end, he said this about Washington, and you all know it. George Washington, he said, first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. Uh, These lines uh, help set their trajectory for how Washington would be remembered. And I want to suggest to you that something similar is happening here at the end of 2 Samuel. Here is, uh, starting in chapter 21, here's a section of scripture where the author wants us to know how to remember, how to think about David. Uh, it's, It's a particular literary form here at the end of 2 Samuel. It's a chiasm. Uh, that is, the sections of it match. There's six of them, and the, the first section and the last section match, and the second and the fifth match, and the third and fourth match. They match in tone, they match in content. Uh, in the middle, they're both poems. Um, and, and we're going through uh, this chiasm. We start in the first one. Today, we're going to go to the last one, and we're going to eventually work our way toward the middle. The reason we're doing that is uh, chiasms are meant to, to help you remember. They're, they're memory devices. You can think your way through the text. But, but more importantly than that, probably, they, they help us see what the author wants us to know. The author wants us to zero in on that middle section, David's last words that are so important. We're going to end Second Samuel, Lord willing, in a few weeks in the middle with those last words in chapter 23. But chapter 24 is a passage of Scripture that reminds us that though David, at times, he was the chief sinner in the whole nation, he was also the most preeminent repenter of his day. Charles Spurgeon, a great uh, British pastor, was asked one time about pastors who sin. They enter into some grievous moral failure, and he was asked, when should pastors be allowed to preach again? Can a church ever hire a pastor who committed some grievous sin? And Charles Spurgeon, uh, well, the Bible doesn't answer this with a verse, a specific verse. There's no timeline or passage like that. Uh, Spurgeon's advice was that he could be restored to ministry when his repentance is as widely known as his sin. It's pretty good advice. Here's a passage of Scripture where we see David's sin and David's repentance together. This is a chapter of Scripture that wants to move everyone who reads it in a particular direction. It it has in mind a a specific place where we all start, where we all start as human beings when it comes to our relationship with God. We all start with the same place with very similar tendencies. And this chapter is meant to move us along with David. When it comes to our relationship with God, we all start with ourselves. We start with our sufficiency and our ego and our record. We start with our own self-reliance, self-dependence, self-centeredness. Tim Keller, uh, uh, Fred quoted him a little bit ago, uh, once told a story about how when he was in high school, his mother used to ask him about activities at school. I think you should join the chess club. I hate chess, he would say. And his mother would say, yeah, but can you imagine how good it would look on a college application? Then she'd say, you know, there's a homeless shelter downtown and they feed the hungry and the homeless on Saturday mornings. You should go down there and and sign up and help them feed the hungry on on Saturday mornings. I don't want to do that. Yeah, but it would look so good on your college application. Just imagine how how it would be. And uh, he said, so at school, I did all kinds of things that I had absolutely no interest in doing for themselves. I was simply putting together a resume. This is what our egos are doing all the time, he writes. 
doing jobs we have no pleasure in, doing diets we take no pleasure in, doing all kinds of things, not for the pleasure of doing them, but because we're trying to put together an impressive resume by comparing ourselves to other people and trying to make ourselves look better than others. We're trying to create a, 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 a list of reasons to feel good about ourselves because we're desperate to fill our sense of inadequacy and emptiness. The ego is busy, so busy, all the time. All of us as human beings naturally start with who we are and what we can do. But the Bible calls us to be people whose hope is not in ourselves, but in Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. That's what this chapter is about. We're going to, we're going to follow David in this move that he makes through this passage. So let's read it. Uh, we're going to read 2 Samuel chapter 24. Uh, I imagine along the way you'll have a question or two. I have questions too. I don't think I have the answers, but we'll try. All right, let's, let's read the passage though first. 2 Samuel 24, 1. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I might know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders. So they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. After crossing the Jordan, they camped near Eror, south of the town in the gorge and then went through Gad and on to Jazir. They went to Gilead and the region of Tatim Hadshi and on to Dan Ja'an and around toward Sidon. Then they went to the fortress of Tyre and all the towns of, of the Hivites and, and the Canaanites. Finally, they went on to Beersheba and the Negev of Judah. And of course, as I read all these place names, you're thinking of all of them and tracing the map in your head. Of course. Just, yes, absolutely. Who wouldn't be doing that? After they had gone through the entire land, that's the point, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. Now David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you to take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come on you three years of famine in your land? Or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you? Or three days of plague in your land? Now then think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I'm in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated, and 70,000 of people, 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. 
When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Aruna looked and saw the king and his officials coming toward them, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Aruna said, why, why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague of the people may be stopped. Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Aruna, gives all this to the king. Aruna also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings. They cast, cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. Do you have any questions about this episode? Ha <laughs> I do, and what frustrates me about some of the questions that I have about this story is that the Bible doesn't answer them at all. Uh, and, and the problem with the questions that I have that the Bible doesn't answer is that they're so distracting that it's hard to get at actually the main point of the passage. So here's what we're going to do. The reason the Bible doesn't answer my questions is because you don't need to know the answer to the questions to get at the central message of the story. But I want to raise some of my questions and talk my way through some of the questions before we get to the heart of the problem. Because I bet the questions that I have are some of the same questions you have. So let's start here. Here's a couple questions. Here's my first one. Why is God angry with Israel? That's how this passage begins, right? Verse 1, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. So what happened that made God so angry? There's no clue in the text, not one clue in the text. Um, the phrase, this phrase, let's think about God's anger for a minute. This, this phrase, the anger of the Lord burned, is, shows up one other time in the book of Samuel, and it shows up in 2 Samuel 6 when Uzzah reaches out and touches the Ark of the Covenant, this terrible desecration that Uzzah does, and, and God strikes him dead. God's angry at other times in the Bible, mostly having to do with the sin of idolatry. But the text doesn't say that here. It doesn't give us any clue. Now, think about this with me for a minute here. Based on what you know about the track record of the nation of Israel and what you know about God, how would you evaluate God's anger here? Do you, which is more likely? Is God justified in his anger with the nation of Israel or is God just being peevish or petulant or whimsical? Based on everything you know about Israel and their wonderful track record. Uh, God is, is probably very, quite justified here. Probably. There's no probably about it. Right? We know the nation of Israel. We know their track record. They did something. I don't know what it is. God's angry. All right? Here's my second question. Um, why, did David, uh, why did God incite David? Why did God incite David? This, is, this question, I think, is going to take a little bit longer. It, what happens is clear in the text. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, verse 1, and he incited David against them. 
Now follow me here for a minute. This is maybe your mind will track with mine for just a second here. So Israel did something. I don't know what they did. Israel did something, and God is angry with the nation. And instead of, though, punishing the nation for what he's angry about over what they did, he incites them to do something else, and he punishes them for that. That seems strange. Why doesn't God punish them for what he's angry with them about in the first place, instead of leading them further down the path and punishing them for this census that, they, that David takes? Does anybody else have that question in the text? Did you read that? What, what is God doing... Why is he doing? More fundamentally here, how about this? Does God, does God do this? Does he ever ordain that his people commit another sin, maybe even a worse sin sometimes, in response to an original offense? Does he ever do that? Well, let's see if we can make this even more difficult, shall we? This is the, the account of the census that's in 2 Samuel chapter 24. The same story is told in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Same story, and look what it says. 1 Chronicles 21.1 says, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. Oh, great. So, was David incited by God or was he incited by Satan? Which is it? Who incited David? Some people are completely flummoxed by this apparent contradiction. I'm particularly not troubled. And I'll, I'll tell you why it is. So the Bible does not feel the need always, especially when it comes to secondary purposes of each text. The, the Bible doesn't feel the need that I sometimes do to trace the lines of causality. We think about this more in the Bible. We, we think about first causes and second causes. and The Bible addresses those issues and sometimes just not everywhere and it doesn't address it here in this particular instance. But we seem to think about cause a lot. Who's really at fault? That, that question actually never came to mind more often in my life. It never became more important in my life than when my children were really small and I was composed to enact justice in my home. This doesn't happen that often, but you, 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 if you have, uh, have had little children at some point in time, you know what this is like. You're, you're in your house and you hear the scream and the crying and you know that some crime has been committed. So, so some child comes to you and, and to protect the innocent and the guilty, I'll use lots of pronouns here. Okay. So this child comes and, and they're crying, what happened? She or he hit me. Okay. We learned at this point in time that the, the, the best way to proceed is to ask the question, what happened before that? Okay. We, we don't ask why, why. We don't ask about motives. We ask about history. What happened before that? I took his or her ball. Ah. What happened before that? He or she laughed at me. Well, what happened before that? I asked that question endlessly. I'm so glad I read a lot of Sherlock Holmes when I was in junior high because <laughs> nothing has been more effective in helping me parent my children than reading Sherlock Holmes. Where's the chain? I want to know the chain. We've got to trace this back to the original cause. Well, 
Uh, the Bible is not as concerned with that question at every point as, as I am. You know, the, what the scriptures know, the universal uh, uh, testimony of the scriptures, God is in the heavens. God works out everything according to his good pleasure. All things and all people, both natural and supernatural, are under his command. He ordains and permits. There's a debate about which word we should use there, which verb God ordains or God permits. I think ordains is just fine with me. Uh, God ordains everything that happens according to his good plans, and he uses people, natural and supernatural, to accomplish his purposes. So I, 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 have, I have no problem with the fact that in 1 Chronicles 21, it says that Satan incited David, and in, in first, uh, 2 Samuel 24, it says God incited David because Satan has always been, despite the appearances at time, God's lapdog for accomplishing his purposes. Well, but why, why then, though, did God ordain that David, when he's already angry with his people, when God's already angry with his people, why would he incite David to lead his people into deeper sin? Does he ever do that? Well, he does it at least once, huh, right? You need it here. There are other places. I actually have... I have other examples that I want to show you. Two of them are quite easy to understand. The third one's more. The third one is easy to understand too, but it's more controversial. Look, First Kings chapter 22. Israel's being ruled by a king. His name is Ahab. He's a terribly wicked man, and and God through false prophets entices Ahab to go to war with Aram, where in that battle uh, Ahab would be destroyed. And look at how the true prophet Micah speaks. What he says. He says, So now the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. Ahab is guilty of sin. God is leading him to a foolish battle where he will be judged and destroyed. Okay? All right, here's another example. Um, It's from the New Testament. In that great day that is to come, when the Antichrist appears, God is going to send a delusion among people so that they will believe the Antichrist lies. The form of judgment. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2.10. I think I wrote that verse down. Um, yes, I did. Okay, 2 Thessalonians 2.10. They, that is these people, perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So before Antichrist came, there were people who would not believe the gospel. They refused to believe the gospel and so be saved. And in response to that here, that's a sin. It's a sin to reject the gospel. For this reason, here's now God's response, verse 11. God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. It's part of judgment. And so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in weakness. Wickedness, sorry. The delusion takes them deeper into their rebellion and it's a form of judgment from God. Right Here's another example. It's more controversial. It's not difficult to understand. Romans chapter 1. Paul is indicting human beings. The sin that they have committed is refusing to glorify God, refusing to honor God as creator and master. Rather than worship God, human beings have become idolaters. They have worshipped and served created things, not the creator. So what does God do in response? Romans 1.24 says, Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. 
Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. And as the passage goes on, verse 28, God gave them over not just to sexual impurity, but human beings over to a depraved mind, the text says. And what results from that? Wickedness, evil, greed, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, arrogance, and the list goes on and on and on and on. All of these behaviors that characterize so much of our own culture are God's judgment for rejecting Him as Creator. Refusing, having refused to glorify Him and honor Him as Creator, God gives us over to these greater sins and, and we see in the mess that comes from all of those things that are listed, the terrible consequences, the terrible fruit of refusing to glorify God. Now, let's move on. I want to ask my third question here. Here's my third question. Why is taking a census so sinful? Why is, why is this such a thing over which David has to, to, to um, grieve or repent? Why is taking a census so bad? It seems like in some ways taking a census would be prudent, right? I mean, in the beginning of Numbers, God commands Moses to take a census. And then in Exodus 30, he allows a census to be taken, provided that sacrifices are offered. Look what Exodus 30:12 says. It says, When you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. All right? So there's provisions in the law for this, but here clearly in 2 Samuel 24, it's wrong. Joab warned David about this in verse 3. He said, are you sure you want to do this? Why do you want to do this? I, I think that what is at the heart of the problem here, what's, what's going on is that, um, well, David has a problem that all of us share. We all have this tendency to manage and determine and enhance our own sense of self-sufficiency. And I think that's what's happening with David. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, when God lays out the rules for the king, he gives these commands. The king is not supposed to multiply wives. He's not supposed to multiply horses. horses. He's not supposed to multiply silver and gold. Don't marry a lot of women. Don't gather a lot of horses. Don't collect a lot of money and revel in it. In other words, don't use the resources that God has given you to make yourself great. Don't use the power that God has given you as sovereign over Israel to make yourself great. God puts his people in positions all the time where they're reminded regularly that they're dependent on him. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. You know how dependent the nation of Israel, by its geography, is, is absolutely dependent on seasonal rains. And if the rains don't come, there's no harvest and there's no food. God put them there. God puts his people continually in positions where they have to rely on him. Whatever benefits and whatever blessings that God gives you, do not use them to make yourself great. Do not forget that everything that you have from God is to be used for His glory, not for your own. But David is counting men. And he's just like Silas Marner counting his gold. Or if you prefer, Scrooge McDuck counting his gold. Right? Making himself feel good about all the money that he has. And David is, 
making himself feel good about all the men that he has in his army. I, I, I have to confess to you, this really irks me. What irks me about this is I, I don't like to be told and I don't like to be reminded that I am dependent on anyone else and that I can't live a self-reliant life. What I really want in life is I want, I want the satisfaction that comes from doing things myself. I want to be able to accumulate to myself a certain sense of control and security. I, I want to accomplish things for myself. I want to establish my own positions of power. I bet that's true of everybody in this room. You want to do things yourself. You want to accomplish things yourself. You want to make yourself safe and not have to depend on anyone else. Every year, the, the world's best puzzlers get together for the World Puzzle Championship. And in 2013, Time Magazine did, a, did a, uh, a story about the World Puzzle Championships. It was in Croatia that year. If you can find it on a map, you can go, I guess. So uh, they interviewed in Time Magazine uh, Will Shorts. Will Shorts is the editor of the New York Times Crossword Puzzle. I hear him on NPR. It's where I first started listening to Will Shorts. So they interviewed Will Shorts about why people in the world like to do puzzles. So you like to do crossword puzzles or word searches or Sudoku. And, well, here's what he said. We're faced with problems every day in life, and we almost never get clarity. We jump into the middle of a problem, we carry it through to whatever extent we can to find an answer, and then we just find the next thing. But with a human-made puzzle, you have the satisfaction of being completely in control. You start the challenge from the beginning, and you move all the way to the end. That's a satisfaction you don't get much in real life. You feel in control, and that's a great thing. Do you do puzzles that way? Here I, I can control this. There's a puzzle I can figure out. I can't figure out the rest of the puzzle of my life, but I can figure this one out. One of my favorite lines from the Apostle Paul is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. I read it regularly to you. I, it's wonderful. He's describing the trouble he's had in Asia. He had a terrible time in Asia, and, and he said this, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Listen to this. Paul, the Apostle Paul, struggled with the issue of self-reliance. So much so that God put him through a terrible situation so that he would learn not to depend on himself. So put me on this list. All right, David, who counts his armies, Paul, and me. We're on the list of self-reliant people. Those whom, by our self-reliance, dishonor God. So anybody else who wants to join us on the list? I'm taking openings for position number four right now. If you want to be on. Five, six, seven. I don't like to be reminded of this, but the Bible does it all the time. It, re it reminds us of this. The Bible is very specific. It tells me, in fact, we go on that further down this road here, I, I have a problem that I cannot, I cannot solve on my own. I want to be lauded for my competence and my success and my genius. I don't want to be reminded of my failures. And the Bible does it all the time, especially when it comes to telling me about my sin. 
The Bible condemns me over and over and over again. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. What do dead people do about being dead? What can dead people do about being dead? Not much. They just lie there. You have a problem you cannot solve. You have a problem you cannot solve by being a good person or by going to church or by giving money to the poor or by getting baptized or donating blood or keeping a list of rules. There is nothing you can do about your own sin and your efforts to do something yourself are as obnoxious and as pitiful as David trying to feel good by counting his soldiers. Remember what our doctrinal statement says about this? This is wonderful when it talks about the answer to our sin problem. Our doctrinal statement says, we believe humans can be restored to a right relationship with God only by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This salvation, it says, is based upon the sovereign kindness of God. It is made possible through the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. It is a gift received by faith apart from any human merit, works, or ritual. It's a gift. It's a gift. Not something that you can earn. Except the problem is, we practice this, don't we? We have this kind of basic assumption that every gift that we've ever received, we really deserve. We've earned it in some way. Uh, Think about it, Christmas. Who are Christmas gifts for? They're for people who are nice and not naughty. Or... um, have you ever given something unexpected to one of your children? You give them a gift and, and, and you say, uh, they say, wow, thanks. And you say, well, you know, your report card was really excellent, so here's a special gift from me. That's not a gift. It's a reward. It's something that you have earned, something that you deserve, like your Christmas bonus. Your boss thinks he's being real nice. She's being really generous when they, uh, they give you a, a bonus. And you think to yourself, I worked harder than I, you paid me. This is just what I deserve. It's not a gift, it's a reward. Sometimes we receive things not not for reward, but for recompense, right? You've been really busy at work, you've been there too long, too many days, too much time, so on your way home from work, you buy your wife flowers, and you bring it home, and you say, this is a gift. It's not a gift, it's a guilt offering, okay? (laughs) It's, It's recompense, it's recompense. We are not used to thinking of gifts in this sense, entirely undeserved kindness. In the case of, of, of forgiveness, it's a gift that goes contrary to what we deserve. Forgiveness isn't a reward that God gives to us because we're good enough or even merely because we're smart enough to choose Him or wise enough to choose Him. It's a gift. It's a gift. Contrary to our natural inclinations to rely on ourselves, there is nothing you can do in response to the greatest threat to your eternal well-being, your sin. So those are some of my questions that I ask about this text. But now we have a chance actually for a few minutes to get to the heart of the text. The heart of this text is about David's response to his sin. Here's how you move from where you naturally are self-reliant people who are incapable of dealing with their own spiritual condition to forgiven, restored people? How do we we move from here to here, from where we are to where 
this passage wants to take us. Two things. Number one, repentance. Repentance. It comes in verse 10 here in this passage. Without the intervention of any prophet, David is, is conscience-stricken and he says, I have sinned greatly. And then he says, I have done a very foolish thing. And what's interesting about this here is that these phrases are supposed to ring in your mind. You're supposed to think about the things about David's life and what you know about David. When David says, I have sinned. Where else have you heard David say that? Reminds us of his great sin all the way back in chapter 11 with Bathsheba. In fact, this text at the end of chapter 23, right before we read this story, it reminds us there, Uriah the Hittite, there's his name. We're going to read that passage next week, but there it is. I have sinned. Oh, David, you have. <laughs> David. And then, then when he says, I've done a foolish thing, that was the, the phrase that Samuel used most often with Saul, David's predecessor. You have been foolish. You have been foolish. David is first in sin in this book, and he is also first in repentance. You can see how David's repentance manifests itself. Great personal cost. He confesses his sin. He takes responsibility, and he asks God to place the guilt on himself, on David and David alone. This is an unusual story. I have another question about the text. I have no answer for it. Um, this is strange. The prophet comes to David and says, You pick. What, what do you want bad to happen to you and the nation? That's so strange. I've, I've thought about it a lot, and, and my considered opinion is I don't know. David picks the plague because it, it's the thing that's most co- closely connected to, to God, and, and he's throwing himself on, on God's mercy. And then in verse 17, how, how does this work? I don't know. David saw the angel who was bringing the plague, and, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, I have sinned. I have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. Now we know from verse 1 that the people are guilty of something. That's why God's angry with them. But, but when it comes to the census, David is the guilty one. And he says, let, it, let, the, fall, let the blame fall on me. Do you remember in... We talked about this a little bit with David's sin of Bathsheba. The reason he murdered Uriah or had Uriah murdered, Uriah died in David's place instead of David. David was not going to suffer the consequences for his sin, except here now he finally is. This is my fault. Let this fall on on me. Notice here we have leadership through repentance. What role does repentance play in leadership? This week I listened to a, a, a podcast of a history lesson about the California gold rush of 1849. It's very interesting. And for just a few minutes of the, of the uh, podcast, they interviewed a man who was an expert in the Native American population of California. And in the gold rush of California, in the period between 1849 and about 10 years later, uh, the Native American population of California was decimated. The population went from about 150,000 people down to 30,000. 80% of the Native American population in California decimated. Some of them left. Some of them died from disease. Uh, Many of them, a vast number of them, were sold into slavery or murdered in mobs. 
So the governor of California recently announced that the state was going to be studying these events in an effort to find out what culpability the state itself might have had in in loose prosecution or in in, um, poor laws. Uh, And and, uh, I'm not sure what they're going to do, but it it reminds us a little bit like uh, the apologies that President Reagan and President Bush issued uh, over Japanese internment during World War II. They publicly apologized on behalf of the nation for interning Japanese Americans. And the United States has paid $1.6 billion in compensatory damages to those who were interred or to their immediate descendants. Is there a role, role for public confession and repentance in leadership? Here David repents over his own sin. I wonder if... Your children, have you ever heard you confess your sin? Do the people in your growth group or in your Sunday school class know that you know that you are a sinner? Not in a generic sense, but in a real sense. The closer the people are to you, the more familiar with your sin, uh, the more familiar they should be with how much you know about your own sin. I am the worst sinner in my family. I am the worst sinner in this church. Those are generic statements. I know that. But, but if you say that, does your spouse, do your children know that you know that in more specific ways? That will be the least surprising revelation in your home ever. Everyone who lives with you knows that you are a sinner. It's part of what we believe the Bible teaches about humanity. We're all corrupted by sin. Do the people closest to you know that you know that about yourself? Repentance is at the heart of the story, but, but the other element here at the heart of this story is sacrifice. Sacrifice. In verse 18, God commands David to go up and build an altar. He obeys. Verse 18 says, Verse 19 says, as the Lord had commanded. Now this is, this is wonderful in the text. Think about this with me for a minute. This phrase, as the Lord had commanded, is used 53 times in the Bible. Preeminently it's used in the Bible back in the book of Exodus when the Israelites are building the tabernacle just like Moses. Uh, God commanded Moses and Moses told the people to build the tabernacle, the place where they would offer sacrifices. And, and over and over again it says, and they did as the Lord had commanded, as the Lord had commanded, as the Lord had commanded. And now here it is again in Second Samuel 24. David did as the Lord had commanded. And you know what he does in this passage? He buys the land and he offers a sacrifice. He buys the land on which Solomon, his son, is going to build the temple. So this passage is connecting David's obedience and sacrifice back to the people of Israel uh, building the tabernacle, that first temple building, that tent. And it's connecting David forward to Solomon building this, this building that's going to be the permanent place of sacrifice. The passage also looks back to Abraham. David's negotiations with Aruna here are very much like Abraham's negotiations to buy the land in Genesis where he buried his wife. Follow me again here. The first bit of land that the God's people, that Abraham and his descendants owned in the promised land was negotiated and it was a burial plot for Sarah. And this last piece of land that's purchased now here in this passage is the land where sacrifice will take place, where God will dwell with his people, their, their, their home, their home in the promised land. According to verse 24, it's a sacrifice that, that came at great cost. 
I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. And David's sacrifice brings an end to this plague. Now it is not hard to see the connections in this passage between what the Bible says about here about David and what the Bible says about David's great son, the Lord Jesus himself. Think about this with me. In order to avert the wrath of God, Jesus offered himself as the sacrifice on the cross when he died. In verse 17, David says, I am uh, the shepherd. Don't punish the sheep for my sin. Discipline the shepherd instead. And the Lord Jesus comes in the Gospel of John and he says, he is the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. There's a key difference between what happened here and what happened on the cross. In this passage, both the sin and the sacrifice were David's. He sinned and he offered the sacrifice. But in the cross of Christ, the sin was mine and his was the sacrifice. This is the story. This is the place where the Bible wants to take uh, everyone who reads this story. It wants to take you to the Savior that we need. Because we have a debt that we cannot pay, Jesus offered himself on our behalf so that we in turn would turn to him over and over and over again. He's our sin bearer. He's our sin bearer. I am first in sin, but he is first in sacrifice. Last November, USA Today uh, published an article about the movie Justice League. Some of you saw it, perhaps. If not, you know about it. It was a, a movie with the iconic heroes, Superman, Batman, Aquaman, Wonder Woman. So uh, they, they have been trying to make a movie about uh, the, the Justice League, these superheroes, for, for two decades. And the article was about all the delays, all the troubles they had in, in putting these, uh, this film together. Uh, it was finally released in 2017, and Ben Affleck played Batman, and he was interviewed about the delay. And he said, well, uh, you know, even the mo- though the movie has been delayed, I think it's perfect for our time. Listen to what he said. He said, we are certainly in need of heroes in 2017. There's a lot of stuff going on in the world, from natural to man-made disasters, and it's really scary. Part of the appeal of this genre, these superhero movies, is wish fulfillment. It's wonderful what he says. Wouldn't it be nice if there was somebody who can save us from all this? Save us from ourselves? Save us from the consequences of our actions? And save us from people who are evil? Oh, Mr. Affleck, that certainly would be nice. Certainly would be nice. Let me tell you about Jesus. You can learn a lot about him by studying his family tree, especially his great, 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 great grandfather, David. David was the first in sin and the first in sacrifice. Jesus is first in all of our hearts. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we come before you this morning and we are moved to gratitude as we think about this, this story, this, these events that happened in, in the land of Palestine so many years ago. Uh, Lord, I'm grateful to you for how you move us in this passage from being self-reliant, self-sufficient sinners like David You move us to the cross of Christ where we see the great sacrifice that was made on our behalf.
the Lord Jesus dying for us and rising again. Father, it is our great joy to follow this, this path that David takes so that we in faith might cry out again to the Lord Jesus in recognition of the fact that he is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. It's such good news. Lord, we confess our self-reliance rears its ugly head all the time. We are, we are constantly trying to apparently convince ourselves and convince you that, that we're good, that we're good enough, that we're smart enough or talented enough or that, that we're, we're capable enough. We, we, we constantly, this comes up over and over and over again. I pray that you would work in us in our minds and hearts that we would exalt in our great Savior, Jesus Christ, who is our sacrifice, the good shepherd who laid his life down for us. That's good news. Seal it to our hearts and minds that we would revel in it, revel in it more and more every day. We pray that you would work this in our hearts, in my heart. Do that according to your great grace through the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray together, saying, Amen.